Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. On today's episode, we're catching up with Ashley Stanley, founder of the nonprofit organization, Love & Spoonfuls. Hey guys, before we get started with our interview, I want to tell you about Image Unlimited Communications, a PR agency that cares about restaurants just as much as we do. This Boston-based firm has a unique and effective personalized approach, and they've got the local and national media clips to prove it. With a sharp focus on lifestyle, restaurants, and consumer goods, the agency has the contacts and the hustle to get you the placements that really move the needle for your brand. Whether you're looking for help with public relations, event planning, digital marketing, or social media, Image Unlimited Communications is here to help. Check them out at www.iucboston.com. That's iucboston.com. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm a little sleepy today. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're hanging in with the newborn. Yeah, he's I don't, he's not even a newborn anymore. Like oh, most, when does that get cut off? I think three months. It's funny because usually they're like, "Oh, the first three months are the hardest," and like, "This is my second rodeo." Like, I know, but I sort of feel like my guy's getting a little crazier. He wants to party all night. <laughs> this is why I'm not ready for kids I'm like, anytime go to soon. Sleep. Yeah, I'm a big sleeper. <laughs> yeah, you always look well rested. Well, I mean, to be honest, I really do get a lot of rest. <laughs> It's one thing that's really important to me in life, and I take it really seriously. Self-care. Yeah. Self-care. It's important. So I'm really going to struggle when I have a kid. Well, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. <laughs> uh, but hey, Ashley Stanley's coming in today. Have you I, met her before? No, I haven't. Uh, I'm really excited to meet her and learn about what she does. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, she started Love and Spoonfuls kind of on a whim. Um, I've met her once before. We were on a panel together about food waste and she's smart and she's funny and she's really insightful she ha- she has a lot to teach um to teach us about food waste and nonprofits and kind of getting stuff done and she's also you know so well loved by so many chefs and people that we all know in the food industry uh, I'm just really excited to sit her down and, and ask her a lot of questions me too. You know, I've paid a lot more attention to food waste over the last few years. And sometimes I feel like I don't know how to help the problem. So I want to hear from Ashley what we can all do in our daily lives to, you know, help. Definitely. And I feel like it's starting to get more attention. It's sort of like a hot topic. But she's not on this because it's a trend. I mean, this has been her like her whole career's Uh, work. So she's going to give us the real deal on, like you said, how we can make change. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for coming in. Uh, We have Ashley Stanley here today from Love and Spoonfuls. Uh, It is your 10-year anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, That's a big one. It is a big one. That's a big deal. It is. It's a decade. Longest term relationship ever. Your decade anniversary (laughs) in the new decade. Yeah. 2020. That's pretty cool. And the crazy thing is, is that, so I'm 41 now, but this, I mean, Spoonfuls was and has been my 30s. And for us, that's such a formative time anyway, especially for us as women. Mm-hmm. Starting a new business, everything that's happened. So, I mean, it feels like just packed in a lot of life in the last 10 years. It's extra special. Yeah. And Ashley, I think most people know about Love and Spoonfuls for 
for anyone who doesn't, can you give us a quick rundown on what the organization is and what you guys do and your mission and just give us the the spiel? Yeah. So Love and Spoonfuls is a nonprofit food rescue organization. And that means we take food that's otherwise being thrown away and then we upcycle that into the social service stream. So essentially, we're taking fresh, healthy food that's mostly post-retail it's lost its marketable, its saleable value for whatever reason. And we inject that back into our network of social service providers, essentially being able to help our partners provide fresh, healthy food for their constituents. Um, it's difficult for a lot of folks to access healthy food when they need help. And so this is really meant to provide some direct distribution uh, and better access for folks who are looking for that help. And, and a lot of that food comes from like some of Boston's best restaurants. Isn't that isn't that right? Actually, no. That's no. the biggest misconception okay. and, and an easy one to make because we are so supported by the hospitality community. Ah, okay. So, so much of how we run and how we're able to raise the funds to support what we do comes from Boston's restaurants and the hospitality community. We work with uh, vendors like Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Big Y, uh, large shelf retail, and then wholesale. Baldor Foods is a big one um, that has a big presence in Boston. So anywhere that has a large um, shelf of healthy food that is ultimately um, going to go post-retail. And there is so much confusion over um, the, how arbitrary sell-by dates are and use-by dates are. Like, this is good healthy food that you're giving to people. Can you explain a little bit about how what that means post-retail? Yeah, so they're use-by dates, sell-by dates, best-by dates, and those are marketing tools has nothing to do with the safety or the nutrition of the food that people are buying. Um, and it can be interpreted a number of different ways. Um, Post-retail for us means, again, losing its marketable, saleable value. So a lot of times, if you're talking about fresh produce, you know, if the apple has bruises on it, if the banana has too many freckles, I think for us, and, and one thing that hasn't changed really in the last 10 years is that as consumers, we really want sort of a food and wine, a bon appetit level of, of uh, cosmetic value to our food, the Instagram value of food, right? How does it look? How does it present? Um, and if it's anything other than perfect, most times it's being pulled off the shelves. And that's where the opportunity to capture a lot of that food is. So I'm curious, what is the process like for you and these people you work with for collecting the food? Yeah, so we've got, yeah, totally. We've got over 200 partners in the space. Under our partner umbrella are our vendors and our beneficiaries. So our partners are uh, the places that I mentioned, Whole Foods, Baldor, what have you. Uh, and then you've got uh, beneficiaries, which can be um, anywhere from a large soup kitchen that's serving between two and 3,000 meals a day to a small domestic violence safe house that might have eight women and her children, uh, and maybe they're on the run and... It's a transitional situation for them and really everybody in between. Uh, kids centers, senior centers, after school programs, recovery homes, um, places that are serving a population either that's in transition or looking to take sort of the next step. And Ashley, I want to step back a little bit. We're 10 years in. Like, why why did you decide to do this? You have a pretty interesting background. Um you, your grandfather, I believe, was like a vice president at Bloomingdale's. You grew up in Wellesley. Um, <laughs> but then you've also, you had like, of course, this element of like privilege and a really 
it did not seem like maybe you were set to start a nonprofit driving refrigerated trucks around. You mean that's not a natural um, path? It didn't really seem <laughs> a natural path. But then you've also been open about um, you're sober uh, and, and getting to that place in your life. So I do want to just like unpack your story a little bit and yeah. like, what caused you to to create this organization. Sure. Um, so, so much in all those questions. <laughs> that was um, a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah no. Classic five. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, 100%. Um, the first one, um, how did I start this? By accident. In no way was I looking to start a food rescue nonprofit. Um, had you asked me 10 years ago or 11 years ago at this point what that meant, I could not have told you because I didn't know what food rescue was. Um, But the constants that have been in my life have been food, have been accessibility in one way or another. Um, At the times in my life that I've needed help, I've been able to get it. I've been able to access it. Um, When I've been hungry, I've been able to eat. Not only have I been able to eat, I've been able to eat what I want. Um, And that in itself is a concept that um, I think a lot of us might take for granted, right? Absolutely. Um, my background for for philanthropy or for charity, my family has a large foundation. I've been around it in, in sort of a, um, not tangential, but maybe a distant space. I understand what it is. I knew what it was. Um, but I didn't understand the relationship between giving and outcome and where money would go and what it would do. And so for me, as I started to, to get into this and as Love and Spoonfuls became a thing, if you will, it was important um, to really make people understand that there's a human being at the end of the ride, right? At the end of, of where your check is going, there's a person. And what did that actually look like? Because I like, you know, threw a one-line version of your life story at you to to get there. It's but... really good. I've never been able to do it in one line, so thank you. <laughs> but I was, you've always been a really fascinating personality to me because Ashley is so beloved behind the scenes in the hospitality world. And I feel like a lot of people don't know about you as, as much as maybe they should. Um, when I'm thinking about, you know, just people in the restaurant culture and consumers, whereas behind the scenes, the chefs, the hospitality community supports you and supports what you do. Um, and when you've talked a little bit like, okay, your family had a foundation, so you knew about giving and that piece makes sense. And you had some of your own struggle. And so you saw what need maybe looks like and you were aware of how you know fortunate you were. Um, but I'm still trying to understand like, what did those first steps look like? Like, were you like, where do I get myself a refrigerated truck? Like, I see some yeah. bananas at the grocery store. Like, I want to know how you built this thing. Yeah, that's totally accurate. It, I need to get myself a refrigerated <laughs> truck. And those look like some bananas. Um, so I literally, I mean, this, I I feel like I've, I've, um, I've told this story many times. So if you have heard it, I'm, I'm sorry in advance, but I still crack up at it. I went into the Trader Joe's in Brookline in Coolidge Corner because that was in my neighborhood where I was living a little over 10 years ago. And I I had wanted to understand what this, like, quote, wasted food was looking like. Because everything you read on the internet, um, when you hear, you know, 100 billion pounds of food, what does that look like? 40% of food that's being produced in the country. There's no frame of reference 
like in your home. You're holding a banana and you're like, okay, so what <laughs> what piece is that? What does this represent? And so I wanted to understand what was being thrown away. Was it trash? Was it actual garbage? Was it stuff that that you can't eat? Um, or was it something else? And so I went into the store and I'm like trying to ask the guys in the back, um, you know, can I see what you're not going to sell? And everybody was like, no, are you a cop? Are you a journalist? <laughs> We're going to get fired, get out, the whole thing. Um, and I just, I kind of like pressed on and I found this one guy and he was he was so great and so patient, but, but I'm sure he hopes he never sees me again. Um, and I kind of was just like, I, I want to see what you can't sell. What are you, what, what do you have to throw away? And for like five seconds, he was like, come back and I'll show you. And then you have to promise to leave, um, which I did. And so I popped into the back for a second and he pointed to the cold storage and there were just rows and rows and cases and cases of potatoes and carrots and onions and apples um, that looked just fine to me. Didn't see anything that was wrong with it. And I was like, what are you going to do with that? And if you've been to the Trader Joe's there, you know that the parking lot is tiny mm-hmm. and the um, the dumpster is like 10 feet out of the back door. And he pointed to the dumpster and I was like, oh, my God, we can't do this. And and he was like, please leave. I beg you, please go. <laughs> and I just I was like, you can't throw that away. Can I have it? And he was like, well, what are you going to do with it? And I'm like, I don't know. This, I mean, this was pre, like, there was no Love and Spoonful's name. There was no, like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I was in between careers. I was just, this was totally like, me. I bring this back to my apartment and I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, this was totally me just kind of like learning as I go because I was interested in it. Um and he was like, well, what are you going to do with it? And I'm like, I don't know. But but between the two of us, surely we can figure something out that's better than throwing it away. So like fast forward 15 minutes, I had like loaded everything up in my car. I'm sitting in the parking lot with this car like full of food. And I'm like, OK, I didn't think this through. <laughs> what what happens now? And I remember volunteering at Pine Street when I was much younger and kind of remembered where it was and drove down, knocked on the back door. And in a series of conversation um, of conversations and, and just some questions about how many meals they were feeding and what kind of food they were serving and the interest that they had taken in the produce that I had, I just figured it would be like a one-off donation. And they were sort of like, this is the hardest product for us to get because it's so expensive for us to procure. Um, and it's the most needed, especially as our constituency grows. And as more and more young people come into the system, they find themselves being in a place of transition, we have a hard time feeding healthy food. And so that clicked for me. And he go and the the guy, Jack, who's still there and now a great, great friend of Spoonfuls, um, he said, where did you get this? And I'm like, from one grocery store on a on an off hour when I just went to ask and it was all random. So to me, all of a sudden, there was a little bit of um, electricity, I guess. And and for me, it was um, 
maybe the idea that there's not enough isn't the right message. And so that's really translated into a, a spoonful's viewpoint of hunger is not a problem of not enough, of supply. It's, it's a problem of distribution. And how do we approach it from a distribution side um, and really and get after it that way? And 15 million pounds of food later in <laughs> 10 years. Yeah, 15 million pounds of food later out of the landfill and, and into the hands of folks who need it. Catherine, I have some exciting news. Remember our season one sponsor, Weinster? Yes, how could I forget? They curate great wines from small producers in the U.S. You browse their collection of unique, hard-to-find wines, and then they ship it straight to your door with fast, cheap delivery. Yep, that's right. But the exciting news is that they're officially opening their doors to their showroom in Seaport this spring. What do you mean a showroom? Can you buy the wine there? Well, you can purchase wine and join the wine club in the showroom, but you can't walk out with wine. They always ship orders direct to your door. Convenient, right? They host small groups interested in learning more about Weinster and the wineries in their portfolio for wine consultations at no cost. An expert wine consultant will lead the group through a curated menu of five wines and educate the group on each pour and the amazing small producers that make them. Guests will also learn about the many ways to purchase these typically hard-to-find wines, either by the bottle, through the wine club, or with many gifting options on the Weinster site. Um, that sounds amazing. When are we going? I think we're overdue for a wine date now that I'm not pregnant. Totally agree. I can't wait to check it out with you. The complimentary 90-minute wine consultations are by appointment only at the showroom, so let's get on it. If you're interested in learning more, head to www.weinster.com. That's W-I-N-E-S-T-Y-R.com. And so how are you uh, spreading the word about Love and Spoonsfuls? I mean, I guess you don't have to work quite as hard to do that now, 10 years in, but you're working with Whole Foods. You're working, I see you have presence um, at events around Boston sometimes. We do. Um, I mean, it, you know, at the end of the day, we are a, we are a small local nonprofit and we we systemize our operation as best we can. We try to be sophisticated in, in the way that we approach the community and our work. Um, but we get out there just as much as anybody else. And we want to talk to our funders, our donors, folks who are in grocery stores. We have an awesome social media presence, I think. Um, and we have an awesome social media coordinator who helps us do that. Uh, our marketing team is really good. And I have to say that um, Boston has been so kind. One of the things that's interesting about Spoonfuls, too, is the business is such a part of it. Like part of the reason why I think you've been so successful is you run this, you know, as as anyone, as any founder would, any kind of startup, and you, it doesn't seem at all hindered by the fact that it is not for, not for profit. Can you talk a little bit about some of your philosophy and like ethos behind how you actually run the business of Love and Spoonfuls? Sure. Um, my background before Love and Spoonfuls was for profit, and I have been around for profit my whole life. Um, the piece that that has stood out just about business in general to me is is you want to make your customer happy. You want to be a good employer to your staff. You want to be a good company to your end user. And so for us, in order to keep that value in the end user, we have to keep the value in food. We have to keep the value in the operation. Food Rescue in particular presented a very specific niche and a very specific opportunity to treat ourselves and our work as a food distributor. That became somewhat 
easy and, and I think palatable for people who originally said, wait, you're a nonprofit. You can't be polished. You can't be sophisticated in your presentation. You can't, you know, try and try and apply some some for profit or, or general business principles to what you're doing. And one of those things that we used to get some heat for was volunteerism, especially on the road. For us, it was very, very important, probably because when it was July and the lettuce was going to start to wilt <laughs> in my car, temperature control um, and temperature compliance became incredibly important. Because, again, if you want to preserve the health and value of your end user, a person, you have to preserve the health of the food that you are delivering to them. So over time, this really became about systemizing and making sure that the food um, was holistically compliant with, with health codes. We applied them to ourselves because it was important for us to wipe away sort of any um, peripheral question about what we were doing because eight nine, 10 years ago, food rescue was still something where people said, what? I don't know what that means. They thought dumpster diving, if they thought anything. A hundred percent. And we wanted to get away from that. Just to clarify, Ashley, what you're saying is you guys don't accept volunteer workers because- Not of, on the road. Because of the way that you're operating that that business. And Correct. Those, those... And, and some of it, I mean, some of it is just logistical, right? Like in the, in the cab of our trucks, you have <laughs> generally one- extra seat, maybe two. Um, for a nonprofit to have to build in volunteer capacity, it often costs money. It often costs time. It takes away from the overall management of the operation. Mm -hmm. um, that was not a priority for us, to invest in that structure. We have since um, been able to offer volunteerism that supports our partners, but it doesn't take away from what we're doing on the road every day. And that keeps us lean, it keeps us efficient, it keeps us a relatively low cost solution uh, to what we're doing. So how many people are working on your team now and how many trucks are on the road? Can you give us an idea of what the operation looks like now? Yeah, we're in the middle of a little bit of a hiring push, which is awesome. Uh, we've got about 20 full-time employees right now. Um, we have seven geographically focused uh, trucks um, that that are indeed geographically routed. Um, a few years ago, we introduced the idea of floaters, uh, and they are folks who um, have every bit as much responsibility as our focused uh, food rescue coordinators, but they jump from truck to truck. And that provides um, some physical relief and physical assistance because after a while, you're, you know, these trucks are rescuing 75,000 pounds of food each week feeding 30,000 people each week. So the amount of time and, and the, num the amount of weight that they're picking up and putting down every day um, is physically exhausting. So trying to provide some relief and support there um, and then just making sure that, that you know, we get, we get some of these coordinators company in the truck. It can be a little isolating. Um, so making sure that we are focused on providing a good experience for our employees, too, has become um, a big priority for us. And Ashley, because we cover restaurants primarily here, yeah. uh, have you seen any meaningful change in the restaurant industry with food waste? It's obviously become more of a hot topic. You and I spoke on a panel five, 
four years ago yeah. about food waste. Um, but I'm curious if you've seen any like real change in that space. So I think restaurants have always been the best example of upcycling that there is. So restaurants in general, the margins are so slim. You have to use everything you have. So whatever is going into the special family meal, whatever's there, um, the way that they're storing and prepping food, um, restaurants are the example truly that we should all follow. So it was never, for me anyway, about restaurants becoming more efficient. That's an inherent part of their business model. They sort of have to be efficient um, to survive. The other thing I'll say about restaurants and hospitality, particularly Boston, which is not unique to Love and Spoonfuls, um, no charity survives without the hospitality industry. Um, and it's regardless of the space that you're working in. It could be puppies. It could be kids. It could be education. It could be cancer research. It could be hunger. It could be the environment. Um, you got to get people in the room and you do that with food. <laughs> I mean, at work, you got to get people to the meeting. So you bring snacks <laughs> in the conference room. Food is food is truly what brings people together for any kind of connection and any kind of meaningful connection. We're incredibly lucky to have the relationships that we do. Again, it's not unique to Spoonfuls. Hospitality is always the first to raise their hand and say, how can we help at their own expense? Uh, and we love them for it. So how can, I guess, we as diners then, and then also as consumers at home, but I guess, again, just because we cover restaurants and think about restaurants a lot, yeah. how can we do better? Go to the restaurants that you love, um, support them, keep them in business. When you go to an event that you love, that has a mission that you love, and you see the chefs and the restaurants there, keep going. Patronize their restaurants. Tell your friends. Spend your money there. Um, they are small businesses too. And so I think it becomes part of that connective tissue of what builds a community. Um, it always centers around food. And then from there, most often you'll get the education, you'll get the conversation because if a restaurant, as they usually are, are committed to these causes, they'll talk to you about it and their staff will talk to you about it. And what about at home? As, I mean, besides just like not buying everything in the store and letting it turn to the sludge of shame yeah. in your produce store because <laughs> you were going to cook this week. Like, what are a couple practical steps that people can take? Meal planning. It's huge. I suck at it. <laughs> but it's 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 so important, right? Because we can go to the grocery store at the beginning of the week and buy all the food. And then by like Wednesday or Thursday, we're tired. We don't have a plan. We don't have a recipe. The food's starting to turn. Oh, maybe it'll be there tomorrow. And then before you know it, it it's bad you, or you don't want to use it anymore for whatever reason. Um, so where the opportunity to capture sort of wasting food at home, A, have a plan, B, have a shopping list, um, and then C, understand a little bit more about what you're buying and what you want to use. Most ingredients you can get two or three meals out of. You can prep them differently, keep it interesting. A lot of that comes with some pre-planning, organization, stuff like that. So how can how can we support Love and Spoonfuls? Write me a check. <laughs> All right, I like your transparency. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean the 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 primary, you know, block for for any company and especially any nonprofit is always raising funds. We're all raising our hand in a, in a very crowded pool from the same, you know, pool of of donors. Um, 
I think on the broader scale, though, understanding more about where our food comes from, um, what we're doing with it, how we're prepping it, and then what we're doing at the at the end makes a difference. Um, the point is to get edible food to people who need to eat it. The point is also to keep food out of landfills. So how do we do that? How do we learn more and more about this? Love and Spoonfuls um, puts on events throughout the year. You mentioned different events. Um, we do our best to educate and give people a great time. Uh, and I think one of the things we hear is that people end up coming back and, you know, they'll keep in touch with us and say, you know, I never, I never knew that I had a different choice to make. And this is how my family and I do it now, or this is how we, you know, want to do it going forward. And so for us, that that's really gratifying. You guys throw a great party, and you have one coming up, I believe, right, in March? We, we do. Uh, on March 25th, we're going to be doing our annual Chef's Table event. And this year, we're so lucky. Um, the theme is a night on Nantucket in Boston. Oh, so cool. we've got five awesome Nantucket restaurants coming to pop up for the night and folks can come and with each table you essentially have your own private pop-up. Wow. Which is going to be some of, Who are some of the chefs that are coming? Uh we're going to have Ventuno restaurant, Straight Wharf restaurant, The Pearl um, and Angela Rayner, who is the owner of The Pearl, is also our keynote speaker. So I know that she's going to give a great talk. She's a badass. She is amazing. Um, the Club Car and then Nautilus. Wow. And that's going to be ahead of the Nautilus opening here in Boston. So we are super lucky. Cisco is supporting uh, our VIP hour. So it's there's just such a there's just such an awesome feeling. And it's you're really an Nantucket well girl, so this is like extra <laughs> That's exciting. That's a badass lineup. <laughs> I know. I, I will. I will say. I, I like to have some influence in the kind of events <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that we throw. You know, little perks. Little, little and I perks mean, listen. And it, and it's so funny because now, I mean, it was so. Uh, people always say, you know, is it weird? Your life and so much of your work is supported by the hospitality and the liquor industry, yet you don't drink you don't partake and I mean it's been it's been a significant amount of time now I've been clean and sober for 19 years but the ability to navigate that and see hospitality uh, and the food and beverage industry um, as supporters of our work has been has been easy because the focus is on serving the community and we get so lucky in Boston, but also some of these larger brands um, come in and they say, how can we help? And so it's been it's been awesome. That's wow. Awesome. 19 years. I didn't realize that. That's incredible. Congrats. Thank you. It's been a it's been a while. Can you tell us about the decision you made to, to go sober? Yeah, it wasn't my decision <laughs> um, a long time ago. And and like I said, I think at the beginning when you when you first asked about it, um, I was lucky enough to be able to access help, and I went to treatment um, a couple of times. And I had been living in New York City, um, and it was really funny because I was an athlete in college and kind of a square all high school and college, so I never really got to indulge. I never really um, was in the party crowd. I never really drank. I didn't do any drugs. I was straight up training the whole time. And I blew out my knees in college and my career was kind of over. And I had seen a career 
playing soccer for myself and um, other people had seen it too. And so that was sort of where my life was going. When that happened, it was, um, oh boy, what do, <laughs> what do I do? And what am I going to do now? And I, I don't know that I had ever really thought of plan B. Um, and so I was in college in Rhode Island. I left. Uh, I was trying to sort of reconcile what this meant for me. And it was tough and it was a big loss. Um, I didn't really know who I was and what is the farthest thing from playing sports, working in fashion. And so because of my grandfather, I it was like this weird double life as a kid, right? Like I was growing up here, playing sports, blah, 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 like in sweatpants and cleats all the time. And then we would be in New York, like in Couture at Fashion Week, like running around on catwalks, like before the show. And it was so just bananas like it was just so crazy it was the one thing I could think of that that was polar opposite to what I had been doing as an athlete but it also opened a world to me that I had never been exposed to because I was so square (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I I I took to it for whatever reason you know there's so much discussion and and stigma around addiction um well, you become addicted because of X or you um, you turn to drugs because of X. If, if you are an addict, um, it's waiting for you. Whatever the lever is, whenever that lever is pulled, and for me, it was just a little bit later, but it was the first time the lever was pulled and it was very clear. Um, and in a few years, I went very, very quickly um, from starting to drink and and you know experimenting with cocaine um, to a full blown heroin addict, and that was tough to How sober old up you, from. To, uh, when I started or when I sobered up? Ooh, both. Twenty-two ish. I think it's a little fuzzy, mm-hmm. um, but it. It was a couple of years that went very quickly, and there was truly no stopping. Um, And the first time I went to treatment, um, I got a very sort of what most people would consider a a stark and bleak warning, Um, like sitting me down after, after, you know, trying to kick and like, you are not going to make it if you don't get your, are you allowed to? You can say whatever, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you don't get your shit together. <laughs> so figure it out. And I was sort of like, you know, I don't belong here. There, there are people here who have, you know, a martini at five o'clock on their patio and they've been doing that for 30 years and I can't relate. So I don't belong here. And, and they basically said, good luck with that. And I was back within the year. Um, at a much uh, more sort of advanced place than when I had left, even with the sort of education I thought that I was taking. I'm going to manage this. I can figure it out. I can smoke pot and not drink or the other way around, Mm -hmm. or if I'm not doing anything hard or street, then I'm good. Um, 
if I'm aware of what I'm doing, then I'm good. All these little bargains for yourself. 100%. And they never work. And at the end of the day, when I got clean, um, it was it was the idea that, I mean, when you talk about bargains and gambles, I really had to get to the point that my life was no longer worth the gamble. I just didn't believe that for a while. So once I got there, it was it was hard, it was challenging, um, but that inherent belief sort of changed everything. Ashley, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's really powerful to hear and um, really inspiring. But on a lighter note, I do want to wrap it up with our rapid fire round of questions that we ask everyone on the show. So let's do it. Can you name your favorite Boston dumpling? Ooh. Yeah, the soup dumpling at Dumpling House. It's a good one. Sorry. Dive. Ooh. Um, <laughs> appropriate, considering our <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's your favorite dive bar, Ashley? <laughs> uh, Silvertone. Okay. It's a good one, too. Um, dessert? There may or may not be a birthday cake on the menu at Myers & Chang that has my name on it. Very timely. That I love birthday. it. <laughs> and it was also our wedding cake because all we wanted was birthday cake. That's amazing. I love that. And lastly, date spot. Sycamore in Newton Center. I love Sycamore. It's one of my favorite restaurants, even though it's outside the city. Hi guys, Catherine here. I know you're used to hearing me talk about restaurants and my human babies and occasionally my fur babies, but I want to share a little bit about my other baby, Not Just Company. I started Not Just to help you eat better at home using modern pantry staples like our crazy delicious flagship product, Not Just Pasta Sauce. It's made with 10 veggies, has no added sugar, plus it's vegan and gluten-free. But the best part is it helps you get a healthy, tasty dinner done fast. On the nights you aren't hitting the Boston restaurant scene, of course. Imagine coming home from work, popping open a jar, adding a few fresh ingredients, and sitting down to shakshuka or quinoa chicken meatballs or chana masala before you've even finished your first glass of wine. Each pack of sauce comes with recipe cards, and I promise you'll quickly be making meals you love, food that you'll actually enjoy cooking, even if you're brand new to the kitchen. I'm kicking off 2020 by offering TFL podcast fans 20% off their first order with the promo code FOODLENS20 at notjust.co. That's FOODLENS20 at notjust.co. This episode was produced by Isaac Price Slade. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston.